Welcome to All Road 65 Max Radio, where the road ahead gets brighter as we journey toward truth, traveling through our dreams and inspiration into a new reality. It's time, and your ticket is waiting. All aboard All Roads Lead 65 Max with Pamela Henderson. Greetings. Thank you for joining me on BBS Radio, All Road 65 Max. I am your host, Pamela L. Henderson. My focus is my mission statement to help create a quality of life through social growth, inspiring Jews to become leaders by establishing partnerships with corporations, nonprofits, donor sponsors, volunteers, the community, and abroad. Please join me every other Tuesday at noon here on BBS Radio, All Road 65 Max Radio. My special guest today is David Tabaski, who has worked in theater and circus as an actor, clown, and a juggler throughout the United States, Europe, Russia, and Japan, including a critically acclaimed solo performance at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Mr. Tabaski provides consultation for established and up-and-coming authors, such as I, who are interested in creating and publishing their books, both fiction and nonfiction. At last, thank you for this interview chance, Mr. David, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Pamela. I appreciate it, and I just want to uh, put in my vote for your mission, because it's... Uh, it's a great one. Thank you. I needed that. Thank you so much. But how are you doing other than that? How was your weekend? Um, good. You know, I like when these holidays come because then my email inbox is not so full. The phone isn't ringing. Um, <laughs> I can really kind of be the boss of myself, um, if that's possible. <laughs> I try. <laughs> uh, just catch up on some on some work you know really yeah I, I it's because also here in manhattan in new york city um the city i mean there's there's obviously activities for for a weekend like this but there's also a bunch of people go away the last big weekend of the summer so in fact the neighborhood is a little a little quieter than usual and it's a good time i like to be home i don't like to be like on out when everybody else is on Holiday. Right. That's the time I would prefer just to be home, um, not not in traffic and you know stuff like that. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. So I mean, who I'm gonna get to wait to it. At the beach, huh? Right? Who wants to wait in line at a beach? Yeah, or at the fair, right? <laughs> yeah, yes, I do agree. Or whatever part of the country is like you know. Um, yeah, I don't think standing in line has never really proven to scientifically to be a particularly healthy thing for anybody. So <laughs> um, I try to avoid as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. You are a fascinating individual, I must say. I was reading about you where you had studied at Aldalfi University in New York City and received your bachelor's degree in studies in film, television, and radio, as well as theater, dance. Tell me about that. Well, when I went to Adelphi, um, it was also such an electric time in the country in the, in the 70s. You know, so there was so much upheaval and change and, and the, just the, the rebound and the continuation of things that happened in the 60s. And so it was a really, really open time politically, socially, educationally. It was a great time to be a student um, and, luckily, to avoid, you know, getting drafted and going to Vietnam. That was uh, definitely not um, something that any of us wanted to deal with, but we had to. So, luckily, I was able to skirt that. And um, I studied theater and also film, radio, and TV. It was great. I, you know, I was a disc jockey in the radio station at university right away, almost right away. And, you know, was in an improv group and um, making films. You know, like, the, you know, the, 
a film teacher given us a, you know, whether it was Super 8 or it was like the first, you know, early, it was not early times, but it was 16 millimeter films and, you know, being in the editing room and like literally cutting, like when you talk about cutting tape together, whether it's audio, like you're really, you're using a razor blade or a cutter or a special cutter and, you know, you're literally splicing, physically splicing things together, um, you know, in, in, in editing and all of that. So it's funny, though, because I learned about editing from doing, you know, audio, you know, doing radio stuff and editing things for radio and editing things for film and for video. And it actually, I didn't realize it until many years later, but it was really teaching me a lot about editing for books because it's a very similar approach. I mean, the mechanics of it are obviously different, but as far as the mindset um, and as, as far as trying to find clarity in storytelling and distilling right. stuff into its simple forms and making it digestible and accepting for an audience, that those principles are really the same. So it was a pretty interesting crossover many years later when I got into, you know, more and more writing and editing. I mean, I was always writing, though. Even right. back in high school, I wrote a play. And then in college, I was writing stuff for improv theater and cabaret and all different kinds of things like that. So, um, and the same carried through when I was doing circus work. And, and then years later, I went back to Adelphi and did my master's in educational theater, and that just kind of took all of that to yet another level, at least for me, um, as far as my own discovery and figuring out what was possible and what's another kind of another deeper level of storytelling. Um, right. Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's all storytelling. Whether you're a politician and you're trying to get legislation passed, you got to tell a story. you got to have people really understand how is that legislation going to affect people? Then you really need real life stories to go along with it. Um, whether it's that or people selling products um, or creating books, it's all, it all at the end of the day does come to storytelling. Um, so, yeah. I do agree. Tell me about your mm -hmm. first opportunity where you had became the first New York clown. I know that was interesting. What made you do that? Oh, I was, no, not the first New York Clown. I was part of the first New York Clown Theater Festival, which was, okay. I think it was eight, nine, 1982. Um, yes, I, uh, the people, well, I was fairly new to the city then, and I was just involved pretty quickly because I was doing a lot. I came and did a lot of shows right away, and the people who were organizing it, I somehow, I can't remember exactly how we crossed paths, and um well, two of them in particular are, are, are very close friends of mine um, still now all these years um, since, uh, John Towson and Fred Yockers and, and, and Jan Greenfield, who also was one of the original founders who, who, who sadly passed away several years ago. And um, anyway, I was really honored. I was fortunate to be a part of that um, and to step into that community was a beautiful thing. It had a lot of effect on who I became, who I am now in a way, just even on a personal level from the, the friendships and the camaraderie among colleagues that, yeah. that what they created, what, what, you know, Fred, John and Jan created, they created such a welcoming open environment for that. And, and so, yeah, we did, there was two years. We did all the second year. I got more involved in the second year and then, um, it, it couldn't go on after that for various reasons, but um, it, was an, it was an important time, I think, for a lot of uh, performers here in New York and the people who came from, oh, gosh, kind of all over the world to participate. Yeah, it was kind of a big deal in its day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know that was interesting. Wow. So... You ran for mayor when I was reading about you in Hartford. And even though you did, did run a, yeah, a successful campaign, however, you had lost. My question to you, because you know how, to me, such as I, you know, we tend to be very creative people and you tend to explore. 
So my question to you is, how did you handle that particular adversity when you lost, even though your campaign was successful? Well, yeah, the word success is, you know, complicated. Obviously, I lost the election as far as I did not get enough votes to become the mayor of Hartford and as right. a result get my I didn't I never got my own parking space behind the Capitol building. Um, so that, you know, city, behind City Hall, excuse me. Um, uh, so, yes, that was a disappointment that I handled. OK, I just kept parking where I was parking. So that was the easy part. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, OK, you know, I I've been living in Hartford for a little while and I had done a lot of performing and I I had, you know, built up, you know, good reputation and I was, you know, the, the theaters were full where I was playing and I was invited to do a lot of pretty cool stuff. And so, and I was also very politically minded um, in the, in the work that I was doing and just in my personal life um, as far as social causes and equity and, uh, you know, you can go on and on. And so I, and I, so running for mayor gave me a different platform um, to run on my, to create my own party. And I was registered with the secretary of state of Connecticut and everything. But here's the funny thing. A lot of people don't know is um, it wasn't really, I didn't, I wasn't doing it to try and take anybody down or anything like that. But when I did a press conference to announce my candidacy, the Hartford Current, which was actually it's the oldest newspaper in the United States, the Hartford Current, um, and it was, you know, the biggest newspaper in, in the city, of course. Um, they came, and a journalist was there, and whoever the editorial uh, people there in charge, the headline the next day on the front page of the city section said, this clown wants to be mayor. What? Well, that's great. No, that's the first half because I was a clown and I was that I was using my my clown skills to 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 animate the press conference, you know, um, oh, okay. and everything. And and mm -hmm. so it made sense. And I was known I was known in the city for 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 doing that, um, you know, as a clown and a comedian. So that made sense. But when you say this clown wants to be mayor, it implies at least in my mind, it implies that that clown already is. And so right. I did fun of the mayor, of the current mayor, but not in a mean way. But then that headline, and I found out for a fact, because, I mean, I obviously knew him, but I knew some of his people too. That really ticked him off. And his people and the part, the, the Democratic, you know, the, the party that he represented, they got really angry um, as if I created the headline. But it was really... For current, so I had collected all the necessary signatures to get my party on the ballot. I had registered with the state of Connecticut as the party party, which was part of the mm -hmm. satire of politics, you know, and uh, you know, and and um, and um, Barbara Kennelly was the secretary of state at the time. She went on to become a congresswoman in Washington for many years, and I I stayed friends. I became friends with her and stayed friends. I visited her in Washington over those times. Um, anyway. The mayor and his people did whatever they could to disqualify just enough signatures to keep me from getting on the ballot. And it would have cost me, oh, my gosh, thousands of dollars to take it to court, um, especially, you know, on a fast track. Everything, you know, everything in America, we think that the, just, the judicial system is free and equitable to everybody, but it's not we think we all kind of know it's not too we just don't want to admit it but you know it comes at a cost and the faster you try and do something uh, through the judicial system the more money it costs um so wow. i couldn't do that so i had to just become a writing candidate and by that point when that happened i i did like well this is not an ego production here i don't even care how many people wrote in my name it's not important i made my point i got a lot of interesting you know publicity out of it for the ideas that I had, and I kind of forced the the other candidate to you know to discuss them and to make you know put them out on the agenda, and so in that regard it was a success, and it was a lot of fun and it was a great kind of artistic creative challenge, figure out how yeah. to really satirize what the what politics are, but not in a bitter way, 
not in an angry way, but in a playful way that really can, you can to point, your, point your finger at the king, the king being not the mayor himself, but the king being the system, you know? And so that really right. was what, you know, to, to become the jester in that kingdom. That's really what I was after. And so in that way, it was a success, but I did never get the, the parking spot behind City Hall. <laughs> That's all right, but, that but you big, get for that the money. Big, that was the biggest perk. It became kind of a running joke. It's because the mayor gets his own parking spot behind City Hall. So whenever you go out and uh, go downtown, you could just park your car behind City Hall and then go to a nightclub or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. I bet. So you also contributed articles and columns to the Sesame Street workshop. Tell me about that project. Yeah. Oh, for Sesame Street, um, back at the time, actually, when my children were born, or, well, not right away after they were born. They, both, both of my kids were born in Paris. I was living in Europe at the time. But then when we came to New York, um, when they were little, um, within a couple of years, it wasn't that long after, I started to write through a, through a connection. I started to write um, essays and and stuff for Sesame Street about some of the struggles I was having with, you know, parenting, like what anybody has. And then they, they actually assigned a couple of things to me they wanted me to write about. So, you know, that was fun. Um, those were all short form, you know, short form writing, which has its own challenges, different than like book form. Um, and so, yeah, that was a good experience writing for Sesame Street. And, and, and then I did a few other, also wrote for some other parenting magazines. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, that was a good, yeah. that was a good way to really get warmed up and, uh, for, for creating books. Yeah, yes. And, and, um, I was reading about you and in Berlin, you had solo project projects such as the man with three balls, how I survived my Jewish mother and help. Right. Tell me about those projects. Those were very well. Those were solo shows that I obviously I wrote them and performed them and and produced them. Well, sometimes they were produced with the theater, you know, where I was performing. Um, and the Man with Three Balls was the first one, and that was really I would just call that kind of general entertainment. Um, mm -hmm. And then because I was still new to Germany. And I wanted to be careful to not start to get into anything too political um, until I really understood why I wanted to do that and what 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 was I really trying to say. And then I got started to get into that really in the in the show How I Survived My Jewish Mother. I did take some big steps with that one because that was really, even though it was a there was personal comedy about being raised with a Jewish mother, obviously, but it was really a bridge to talking about what it is like to be Jewish in Germany and, and German history and the Holocaust and all that stuff. And to try and figure out how do you create dark humor out of that, that is legit, that stands on its own. Um, and, and, you know, it's provocative, but not in the wrong way, you know, whatever that may be. Different people will define that differently. And then, how I survived, um, then um, Help I Married a German, I wrote that show after marrying a German. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, it was really playing with these stereotypes of German characteristics and German personalities, and also being a Jew, marrying a non-Jewish German, and how that is, and, 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 and things like that. So it, that was a lot of fun, and I did that a lot, actually, that show. Um, so yeah, those were, those were good times. The interesting thing was that show debuted at a place called the Ufa Fabrik in Berlin, which is a historic, originally historic film studios where, um, Marlena Dietrich starred in the Blue Angel that was filmed on that lot when that, when it was a movie studio and then it became a commune, not a, well, kind of a communal, um, art um, arts community, which it still is. It's, it's an amazing place. They have a school, they have a farm, they they have uh, health programs, they've got theaters, they got circus, they have 
you know, um, organic uh, food shop. That it, it's a beautiful, beautiful place right in the heart of, of an urban city like Berlin. And so to, to debut Help I Married a German in that theater was, was really special. Wow. Yeah, that sounds absolutely special. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I was lucky. I was lucky, lucky thing. I haven't thought about that in a while, but now that I'm answering your question, um, yeah, it is. It was really, it was a, it was a really lovely, lovely time. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about your new book, The Boy Behind the Door. Tell me about that. Well, that came. This this book is basically kind of a second edition. I originally wrote the story about ten. 10 or so years ago, um, with, it came out with a, a small publisher here in the States, and then that publisher went out of business, essentially. And so I, I, my agent, my literary agent, found this new publisher, Amsterdam Publishers, which is housed in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, um, which is the, the location of a good part of the story. And it traces a real-life story of Solomon Kuhl, who I'm going to call Sal, S-A-L-O-M-O-N, Solomon, and K-O-O-L, which is a, you know, more of a Dutch way of, you know, spelling the name K-O-O-L. And Sal was, was a week shy of his bar mitzvah when the Nazis invaded the Netherlands a year after they had invaded Poland, which, you know, really started, you know, the Second World War. So, the Netherlands was one of their next, excuse me, one of their next big steps. And so it traces his story um, from that time all the way through the war when he luckily did survive. But I'll tell you, I think you were asking how that came about. So right. there, a man named Sandy Batkin, who was, lived in lived at the time in Scarsdale, New York. It's a suburb of New York City. It's kind of known as a upscale suburb with a lot of Jewish, you know, business people, doctors, lawyers who make their home in Scarsdale, has very good schools. And um, anyway, Sandy grew up as a conservative Jew here in America. He became a successful businessman. I think he did a lot of real estate. And uh-huh. he was also act- he was active in his synagogue. And he was a supporter of Israel becoming a nation after the war, which many Jews in America were at the time. And um, he felt kind of like many others kind of felt, I don't know if guilt is the right word, but helplessness, guilt, or what yeah. happened in the Holocaust that American, Americans, well, Americans officially did very little. I mean, that's the flip side of, of, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We all, a lot of people, you know, kind of worship him. Oh, FDR, he was the greatest, the greatest, the greatest. But he was also responsible for some tremendously awful things during the Second World War when he did not accept Jews on on ships and turned them back and sent them back to Europe to to be murdered, um, which they all were, uh, or most. And, um, but anyway, I'm trying not to sidetrack, but one day in the early 60s, Sandy Bakken and his wife were on a vacation in Aruba, which is a Dutch colony, Dutch island in the Caribbean. And he's standing in the ocean, and he meets this guy named Sal. Cool. And they're just chatting. And Sal, having grown up in the Netherlands, spoke good English, as many do, especially if you grew up in a city. Um, everybody had, you know, studied English and they, and they learned and they used it throughout their life, um, in such an international city. So they're chatting and it's basically, so who are you? Who are you? And Sandy's like, well, you know, I live in Scarsdale and I'm a member of the Jewish community and da da da. And this is what I do. And I love Israel and I'm, I'm you know, I'm supporting this and I'm, you know, donating to that. And how about you? And then so, I mean, I'm obviously paraphrasing, but basically, well, I, I'm, I'm a Holocaust survivor which was the upshot of it. And Sandy oh. was, was just flabbergasted because he actually had, at that time, had never yet met one, I don't think. 
think that's what he told me. He hadn't, this is the first person that he'd met, like really like in a personal way. Standing there in their bathing suits in the ocean. They had everything in common, just two guys with their wives on a vacation. But yet their lives were completely polar opposites as far as what their experience has been. Sandy had, uh, you know, a vibrant, active family. Um, you know, Sal at that time was married, but he had lost all his immediate family in the war. Um, and so, you know, they had two very different, you know, histories. Sandy yeah. was like, oh, my Sal, you have to tell. You have to tell your story. Hold on one second. Sorry, um, Sandy said, "Hey, Sal, you have to tell your story. You, you've got to tell your story." And Sal was very reticent. He was very quiet, a very unassuming man. Um, and it was a, obviously a loaded story. You don't just, you know, snap your fingers and share a story like that. So. They stayed friends. They, they did other holidays together over the years. And Sandy kept pestering Sal, as Sal told me later when I met him. He said he used that word, pestering. Um, and he finally gave in. He said, okay, okay, I'll tell it because, you know, my children are now grown and I've got there's a couple grandchildren on the way and I really should record my story and tell it. And um, so Sandy met someone, an agent here in New York who knew me, and she put us together, and Sandy commissioned me to write this story of Sal. I went to Amsterdam and spent, I don't know, like a week or so there. Sal took me around to, oh, many of the big places in the city that were crucial to the story. For example, the Jewish theater, the legendary Jewish theater of Amsterdam, which was an iconic place, which was perversely, cynically used by the Germans as a collection point for all the Jews. They would take them, bring them there first, and then within hours or days, they would be shipped off to concentration camps. And their children, the young children who were under 16, were separated and sent across the street to a place that was known as the creche, which was basically a nursery kindergarten-type uh, a place for babies and young children. And that's where Sal was taken because even though he was older at the time when he was taken, he was physically little and he, he, you know, he was able to pass for somebody younger than himself. So it saved, that's what saved his life. Otherwise, he would have been sent to the camps. Um, so is that all that all information that you have? That's how you created your book. You put that book together from all everything that the experience and and everything. Well, from everything that Sal told me, right? And he right. took me around. We walked. We walked around the city, and he showed me these two places. And he showed me the apartment building of where his cousin, a distant cousin, lived, so that when he had to go hide, he found this this this. You know, a place where, where his cousin was able to hide him for a few days before he couldn't hide him any longer. And then another place, and another place, and another place, until finally resistance fighters took him out of the city because they said it's no longer, it's, it's just not even remotely safe for a Jew to be left in Amsterdam. The Nazis are, are exterminating, they're, they're, they're doing the final roundup of everybody. Any Jew in, in that city is, is, is doomed to die. So we had to get you out, and they took him. He ended up in a succession of Christian homes in the countryside, in most in, mostly in northern Holland, um, which was farther away, you know, where the, the reach wasn't as, as strong. There were still German soldiers there. He, he had plenty of incidents where he had to hide and, and you know, pull some tricks to, to not be found. Um, and then, he, but he lasted out through the rest of the war, and there, due to the the bravery and the generosity of, of non-Jews who hid him um, throughout. So that lasted several years until the war ended in 1945, and he came back to Amsterdam, and it took quite a while until he found out officially that his entire family had perished. Wow. 
Yeah. Wow. That was deep. So, yeah, the way that it happened, um, you know, was the way that the book came about was pretty interesting as far as this relationship between an American man and a Dutch man who were, were you know, on the one hand, they were peers. You know, they were the same age. Um, they had, you know, in a way, they had similar similar educational backgrounds, but that's sort of where it all stopped. Um, so right. I also did a lot of research. I did a lot of research to fill in all the blanks, you know, um, of what things that Saul couldn't quite remember as far as context, you know, like what was actually literally happened. What, for example, what did the Nazis forbid first, second, third, fourth, fifth, in and at what time in 1941, 42, 43, you know, on. I had to you know, do research and find, you know, and fill in a bunch of blanks there, you know, but that, I mean, all that information, you know, was available. Yeah. It wasn't, wasn't that, it wasn't that hard to find. It's just have, have to do your due diligence and, and then, you know, put it together correctly. And then you, yeah, it, it, it can fit all together. Um, yeah. There were times that I would call him. There were times when I would call him and I'd say, oh, I'm on chapter 20 or whatever chapter I'm, I'm stuck on here. Do you remember this or do you remember that? What else could you tell me about this or that? And so it was, a, it was an ongoing process um, through the many, many months that I worked on it. Yeah. And good, good for you. And how long it take, had taken you to write the book? I don't remember exactly. I would just say many months. Um, <laughs> there was, like I said, there was a lot to get down. There was a lot just to get the store, just to get the facts out on paper and then to do some of the research that I knew I would need. And then as I started to recreate the moment, like the, the siblings, Sal and his three siblings joking, playing around in the street. I mean, obviously I wrote the dialogue for it. He didn't. He, he wasn't telling me this is what we said, and then she said this, and my brother said that. I mean, it was so long ago, he, who would remember? So that's where the history becomes historical fiction. So, for example, the dialogue between him and his siblings, or him and his parents, and then him and the Germans, him and, and the, uh, the families who took him in, um, and the moment-by-moment -moment stuff, yes, did I, I recreated that out of everything he told me, the relationships that I perceived he had with his family and with these other people, and then also checking it with research I did to make sure that references were accurate and, you know, even some idiomatic language. I mean, I wanted to make it accessible, though, for basically an American kid or a Western kid reading it now, you know, in the 2000s. So oh, okay. I wasn't using language that is on the street now, literally, but you want to not use too much from how it exactly was, you know, in, in Amsterdam. So, like, in a, I don't know how to say, I guess, like, subtly, very subtly and gently modernizing it just a touch here and there so that it would be, it, it would be um, accessible right away for a child, that they're not going to look and go, what are they saying here? What does that mean? What does this mean? Because then within another, you do that a few too many times, they're going to lose interest. Right. And then, okay. and then, and then they lose the education. So what's the point of that? Um, yeah. This isn't meant to be a history book. It's, well, it is. I mean, in a way, it's, it's, it's obviously history, a sacred time in history, but it's, you know, it's not a textbook. That's my point. Yeah. So I was reading also about you where I would say some of your shared work that you are focused about, and that's um, about the cancer book. Tell us about your other writings. You have four contributions to the cancer book, 101 yeah, Otteries. Um, thank you for asking about that. That's been really important work to me. I started, um, I worked with um, Chicken Soup for the Soul Publishing, that publishing company. Oh, okay. Yeah, because the cancer book is really Chicken Soup for the Soul, the cancer book. Um, and and um, that was back in 2000, 
2008. The book came out in 2009. And um, I, they hired me to, to put that book together. They hadn't had a book on cancer in 10 years. And um, I actually changed the way they framed it because you, usually chicken, it's like chicken soup for the, for the cat lover's soul or chicken soup for the somebody fill-in-the-blank soul. You know, and I was like, "Mm, that's, I think with cancer, you know, I'm not, I'm not against cute cats and farming dogs and things like that. But this, this subject matter is a lot more loaded than any of those books. So let's, let's just go with Chicken Soup for the Soul. Obviously, that name is very important in the brand, but let's just call it the cancer book. And then we came up with 101 stories of courage, love and support which wow. these stories really reflect. And so I work hands-on with all 101 stories. Some of them I helped, I helped to write and nurse them through, and some of them were heavy editing. There were only a handful that came through that actually were easily to use that didn't need a lot of work. But that was a big, big labor to put that together. But what happened was at that same year in 2008 at the Lombardi Cancer Center at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., they had done a study about the effects of um, writing for cancer patients who, while they were waiting for their chemo appointment or radiation or whatever, while they were in the waiting room, they were given prompts to write about for like 20 minutes. And then they were all, you know, it was a university, so they all the research, they had all their eyes dotted in the teeth across and they did all this research and created this data where it was across the board um, it was positive physiological health for these patients with uh, self-expressive writing and so um, Genentech which is a pharmaceutical company um, based in California well actually they're owned by a Swiss uh, company but Roche but they approached me because of that study and the cancer book, they both came out almost within months of each other. And they approached me to do writing workshops and presentations in cancer centers around the country, which I did in this pilot program for three years. Oh. Um, not every day. It was not. It was part-time. But it was, you know, I, I was, and they brought me to, like, the biggest centers in the country. Um, and so I did these w- workshops with patients, caregivers, medical staff, sometimes separate, sometimes they were all mixed in, and then, you know, and then speeches, and, um, you know, and then I started to do presentations for other big organizations like American Cancer Society and um, Leukemia and Lymphoma Foundation and uh, others like that, and, and, you know, and other nonprofits who are devoted to patient care. And so I still, up until the pandemic, I was still doing it to a certain degree, um, mm-hmm. and then, um, but like the funding had run out by then, and I couldn't. Everybody wanted me to come for free, and I, I, I couldn't. You know, they didn't have it in their budget, <laughs> but I couldn't do it. If I said yes to one, I have to say yes to everybody, and then I, I couldn't feed my kids that way. So, yeah. um, and then since the pandemic, it's been a it's been a slow go to resuscitate that. But I'm really yeah. glad. Thank you for asking because that is something that I am really very much would love to. Yeah, you're passionate about it. Because I was reading when you had made the statement, and uh, tell me, because you say, when uh, you said communicating your way through cancer and chronic disease, what do you mean by that? Well, that's the book, that's the Right for Life book which was originally communicating your face through cancer, and then I expanded a version to include chronic disease, which luckily in some cancers have become chronic diseases, um, and they're really manageable. So the idea was when I I found that um, when people get diagnosed Uh and then their, their families, the first thing that happens is fear the unknown. And it's very powerful. And then yeah, what happens what happens when anybody gets afraid of something, no matter what it is, it compromises our ability to communicate. It's just basic human psychology one oh one. 
Um, okay. It's nothing. It's nothing that I think about. I mean, it's like you know, it's, it's trauma. Trauma creates stress, which creates you know tightness, which which people close up. They go into protective shells. They they run away. They 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 just they're trying to. Uh, sometimes they're trying to live in denial because that's safer, or they think it is, or they just they can't face it. And then and then on the other side, let's say somebody's diagnosed, well, their partner, whether it's husband or wife or partner of any kind, that person is rendered somewhat helpless. How do I help you? You're the one who has the cancer. I can't, I'm not a doctor. I can't. How do I help you? And then the, the communication gets messed up. It's a, it's a yeah. rare, it, it, it's really kind of a, um, the majority of people struggle with this. Some couples handle it fine, but they're not in the main. The main majority of people struggle. Um, I met many men who were, let's say, 50 and over, who from that generation, those men were not raised or supported in becoming more expansive men, if you will. Even like the basic stuff, they didn't cook, they didn't clean. Their wives did that. Those were different roles in their relationship. Um, you know the old, you know the old white picket fence. The man went out to work. The woman yeah. was the housewife. And then mm. so when the woman gets diagnosed with cancer and she's she's laid out, she's in bed, she can't cook, she can't clean. And the husband's like, "Okay, well that's the relative easy stuff. I can learn how to clean, you know, and it's, <laughs> and I could cook something." But how do I care for you? I'm afraid to even ask you, cause I don't, and, or you ask me how I feel. Oh, my God, I'm a man who didn't grow up expressing his feelings. That wasn't, you were taught the exact opposite. Oh, you want to be a boy, you got to be strong, you never cry, blah, 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 yeah, blah. Yeah, that isn't that something? That, yeah. It doesn't set you very, up very well to be a caretaker for, for your wife who has cancer, or your child, or your mother or father. So there's lots and lots of people who need help and yeah. need to be invited in to a safe I, space to communicate. Um, yeah, so I remember when my mom, um, when she was diagnosed uh, with carcinoma cancer um, uh, back in 2006, and she sat down with me and we had discussed about the situation and here she was so calm and, and everything. And here I am, I was just, just crying and bawling out because I was like, how can I help her? But she really, really made me understand that she was okay. And she was going to just continue to move forward. And even though they gave her a life uh, expand her. They said she was going to live only for four years. She ended up living for five and a half, six. And she really would have lived longer if she would have got that um, trigonomy. Uh, how you say that? Trigonomy uh, in her throat. Right. So right. she didn't well, want to. Sorry, sorry for your loss. And I, I can understand how that must have been so traumatic for you because of just what you said. I don't know what to do for you. I can't, there's no right. magic bullet and there's no, and like there isn't any way that we never learned like what's the, what are the right things to say? What are the things that you don't say? I mean, and that's obviously changes according to who the person is. Everybody's not the same, but, but still there's some basic things that, you know, for example, when someone's in treatment, you don't keep asking, Hey, how are you today? How do you feel? How do you feel? How do you feel? That's like not, it seems like a caring thing to do, and the low-hanging fruit, it seems like it's the easiest thing. Oh, I can show somebody I care about them by saying, how are you? But you're really putting somebody on the spot to, because usually, hey, how are you? That's a passing thing. It's sort of like, it's like breathing. We always say that to each other. But when you have cancer, suddenly, how are you is a loaded question. Yeah, yeah. So you that can't, you've got to really pick and choose. Who and when you actually say those words to? Because it's it's not it it isn't necessarily a friendly overture. It's too loaded. Um, and then a lot of times people ask that question. Then when somebody really answers it, they're not ready to hear the answer. Yeah, that is true. That is true. <laughs> so tell me. And, 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 
Yeah. So tell me, yeah. what, what do you like most about your work that you do? Well, this is nice. <laughs> I'm having a good time talking to you. I really appreciate your questions, too, because they really are opening up for stuff that's way beyond what's on the surface. Um, yes. And I think that that's what I've enjoyed so much is the relationships that I've built up with people in the projects that I've done especially because I've done a series of books with people who are really struggling in their lives, whether it's with cancer, because I've done, you know, many books with cancer, uh, some of them with doctors and some of them through the patient stories. And, and then people who have gone through, I've done some memoirs with domestic abuse and others with mental health. And these are the things that are very gratifying. Like you, the end result of the book, that's great. That's all fine and good. But in the process, what I see, how the people grow and how they've been able to overcome some of their struggles in the process of creating the book. And it's not always easy because if you really want to do, you really want to help other people, you want to show yourself and lay yourself out there to people, you know, then it can be painful. And and, yeah. and and uncomfortable. So it's sort of like, how do I gently take them into a place of discomfort and still support them through it on a personal level and at the same time create a meaningful book? Because sometimes there's a, there's a detachment, you know. So how do we do that without that detachment? Or how do we, or how do we take care, you know? How do we care for, for that space in between that's unknown? Um, that can be frightening and very uncomfortable. So that's the challenge to me that is maybe most gratifying. And then on the yeah. other side, I get to do stuff like write or edit, like just crazy books that are just fun. You, you, you know, so it's just using certain skill sets um, to yeah. have a little holiday from those heavier subjects. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is the good one. In 2009, you and your colleague, Bruce Kluger, co-authored the book, Dear President Obama. And, you know, there were letters of hope from children all across America. And what was so unique about this was that the collection was published during Mr. Obama's first 100 days in office. Tell me just a little bit about that. Well, that was a beautiful project to do. It was a huge labor of love. I mean, Bruce did Yeoman's work in creating the whole graphic look of it. I, I mean, he, the publisher was really nice and supportive, but it was really Bruce who actually did the layout page by page by page. And, you know, I worked a lot with the content and, and, and you know, back and forth with the families and putting all that together. But Bruce is the one he, he really laid out so, you know, carefully every single page to give it a life that reflected, you know, what the child's energy was. And so that was really, you know, really, you know, hats off to him. And, um, the, um, it was, I mean, to, obviously we were, obviously we were both big Obama supporters and we thought we were so hopeful like many other people at that time that, that this was maybe a watershed moment in our history. And I think that, it still is a watershed moment, but a lot of the watershed, if you want to use the metaphor of water, there's a lot of leakage. And a lot of the water that was leaking was very poisoned, you know, by by bigotry and racism and white supremacy. So let's just call it for what it is. So, right. you know, yeah. if you want to call it a watershed, there was like a, there's been a flood of poison, you know, ever since. Yeah. Wow. So it's pretty bitter for me. It's bitter. It's really bittersweet. And I think about the kids who were in yeah. that book and what they've yeah. seen the country turn into. That's pretty horrifying. Um, but right now, do, isn't, uh, isn't uh, Mississippi has some water issues now, right? Isn't it Mississippi? Jackson. But, you know, Jackson and, 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 and Jackson should be getting all the media attention it is. But, you know, there are hundreds of other cities that are mostly that are that are the majority of the people are minorities who live in those cities who 
are also struggling with water issues. They don't have clean water. And, and even here in, in, um, in New York City where I live, the um, city housing, they're just dealing right now. There's, many, there's several city housing units which hold thousands of people. That have, they have arsenic. There's arsenic in the water. Yeah, but yeah, you know, I, it's, it's, it's like you know the politicians talk a good game, but the people who are not donating to their campaigns, yeah, the truth is they yeah. just don't care. Yeah. They don't care because what do you represent? You don't represent a political donation. You're not even. Are you even a human being if you can't donate to my campaign? I know I'm being harsh when I say that, but and it's not. It's not. No, 100%. it's not. You're speaking the truth. That's what it's all about, but, and it's about speaking the truth. When you shake it out, it's true. Like this whole thing, for example, with, with um, uh, yeah, well, I don't want to go into I could go on and on with that stuff. But <laughs> I, it's just true. It's just the truth. You know, politicians, it's, it's all driven by money. Yeah. Don't we know? <laughs> I, sh- I definitely know. Oh, yes. I definitely know. You got to get my book, A Journey of a Sapphire. Because it's going to tell you about my journey, and you're going to be calling me on the phone. <laughs> All right. I tell you, it's, okay. It's, um, do I have uh, Do I have the Do I have the link for it? Um, you should. It's a, a journey. You could go to oh, my I- website, which is journeyofasapphire.com, and you can purchase yeah. the hard copy, or it's also on Amazon too, as well. Okay. Yeah. So I just got a couple I'm, more questions. I'm, I'm going. I'm going to do it. I'm definitely yes. going to do it. Yes, yes, yes. And that's the reason why I consider myself as a sapphire. I am a woman whom for the last, I would say, 13, 14 years now have gone through uncertainty and adversity. And I'm still striving for success. And even though I'm crawling like a caterpillar, but I'm moving forward and I'm not allowing nothing to stop me. And that's my most important goal in life is to become successful because I love what I do. and I'm passionate about helping people. It's so called journey me, of Sapphire. It's called. Yeah. Yes, sir. Okay. A journey, a journey of a Sapphire by Pamela Henderson. Pamela L. Henderson. So tell me what outcome matters to you when you are coaching someone to write book? Ooh, interesting. Ah, what is the, what outcome am I shooting for? Well, as I was saying before, as I said before, it's really not necessarily my my thing is is to create whatever whatever role I'm playing. You know, sometimes I'm uh, I'm a consultant. Sometimes I'm co-writing. Sometimes I'm I'm counseling and editing, or some combination of all of those, depending on who the person is and and all. But what I try to do from the very beginning is to help them identify why they are writing the book. What do they want from it? And I challenge them on that. You know, not necessarily all in the first conversation, but at the end of the day, they really need to know and keep sight on it because I ask them, for example, okay, we're talking about all this thing. We're even getting into a chapter outline. Let's think ahead six months to a year and your book is out and you're doing your first interview and the person says, so what's your book about? And, and, and you got to tell them in a concise way. And then you well, why did you write this book? Okay, so what's your answer? And then there's almost nine times out of ten. Uh, um, well, uh, you know, I want, I'd be nervous on radio. I never did a radio show. I said, well, that's not, my question isn't about whether you are a veteran of doing interviews. My question is, how would you even answer your neighbor when you're standing outside at the garbage cans? And they say, oh, I heard you have a new book. Why did you do a book? What's right. the answer? Just casually right. to your neighbor, you know? Um, so if you can't answer that, then what are we doing? Right. <laughs> so, I know yeah. because when I had wrote my book, it was a way for me to be heard. And it was a way for me to overcome the adversity and uncertainty of challenges and obstacles that I have gone through. 
as I move forward here. And it did. It, it was, and it, it healed me in a lot of ways. I was well, able see, to. That, at, at, yeah, at the end of the day, I think, isn't that, that that's kind of what happens, Pamela. That, I think, is what is, the, is a universal reason for not every book, of course, but for a lot of books, especially when they're books about a personal, you know, journey, right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So I know that we're headed up for time here. Is there anything else you would like to share about what's next before we go and how someone can contact you? Well, um, people can contact me. I mean, there's a few things. They could, my website is kind of a general portal. It's easy. It's tabatsky.com. T-A-B-A-T-S-K-Y, Sebasti.com. Or they could go on the website for this book. The Holocaust book is The Boy Behind the Door, theboybehindthedoor.org, O-R-G. Um, and, you know, it's a, it just came out. The book is just out um, September 1st. And the easiest way um, is to get it on Amazon or some other online platform. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah, and then actually in October, the first week of October, I have, I have another book. This is, this is what I was telling you about, like writing about these very serious subjects. I, I also had kind of a, I wouldn't say the project wasn't frivolous, but the storyline kind of, it's a book called Filthy Rich Lawyers. And it's a satirical novel about these um, wealthy lawyers and people in their sphere who are just, entitled, rich, perverse people, but this book is, I think the book is pretty funny, um, if I can say so myself, um, well, that's, and so anyway, I mean, that book comes out in October, mm-hmm. yeah, called Filthy okay. Rich Lawyers, so. Well, yeah. we have to talk about that book, too, let me know, we can, I can schedule you in, because I want to talk about that, Filthy Rich oh, Lawyers, I, that's good. I'll make sure that somebody reaches out to you, or I'll send it, I'll send you I'll, you know what? I will forward. I'll forward your contact onto to our media company to make sure they get you everything. Okay. Okay. I would love that and appreciate that. That's very interesting. Yeah, no, that would be fun. <laughs> I enjoy talking to you, and I I really appreciate you giving <laughs> me so much time to really like not just like the you know fourteen second answer kind of thing. Right. Um, yeah. No. No. Well, no. no. I, I can see one of those. Like you know, like. Like drive time radio, where you ha- you're on you're on for like four minutes, and you have to tell your whole life story in four minutes, and, you know, <laughs> and then cut to the weather, and then go to the weather and the traffic report, you know, yeah, <laughs> right. Well, David, it has been a pleasure having you on my show, and I do look forward to chatting further in the future. And thank you again, and good luck on your endeavors. Thank well, you, listeners. We'll see the link too, okay? Yes, yes. Well, listeners, I have reached my destination. I am a award-winning author of the new book, A Journey of a Sapphire. I hope to inspire others who are on their journey towards success to never give up on your dreams and how to recognize behavioral problems. Please visit journeyofasapphire.com to purchase your copy of my of my book, also available on amazon.com kindle fire and as always i leave you with this quote that resonated me by ron richards who put this out on creative quotes and do have a wonderful day i am in competition with no one i have no desire to play the game of being better than anyone i am simply trying to be better than the person i was yesterday Have a beautiful day. Cheers. Thank you, Pamela. You're welcome. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to All Roads 65 Max Radio with Pamela Henderson. Join us every other week on Tuesdays, 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on BBS Radio Station One. And please visit allroads65max.org and become a volunteer or sponsor and be the change you want to see in this world. With your help, 
we can make a difference in our society and uplift those who so desperately need our help. Thank you for tuning in.